another uh, Pali word. So if any one thing happens, at least you'll be expanding your Pali vocabulary a little bit. Um, so it's also a Sanskrit word. Samadhi. S-A-M-A-D-H-I. And some of you uh, may be familiar with this word, some, some less so. Uh, in, it's also a word that's uh, present in other traditions. So in the Hindu tradition, uh, it's, it's a common word. And it has different meanings in different sort of strands of the Hindu tradition. And I want to talk about what it means in, in, in the Buddha Dharma sense. So samadhi usually uh, gets translated as concentration. Concentration. Uh, I'm not particularly fond of that word. Uh, to me, concentration implies kind of squeezing something very small into a small area. So uh, we talk about concentrated, uh, you know, laundry detergent or, or whatever. It's a lot of stuff in a, in a very small area. And that doesn't really give a sense of what samadhi means. So. Samadhi is more the collectedness of mind, a, a collectedness of mind, a gathered mind, a mind gathered, unified, together. Uh, so collectedness, unification, I quite like the translation, depth of meditation, depths of meditation, so uh, without measuring necessarily, just a sense of deepening that depth that one can come to. And this samadhi, this depth, this unification, is actually a lifelong exploration. So it's not something we sort of, you know, calm down with the breath on the first day of the retreat or whatever and then forget about it. It's actually a lifelong thing, ongoing part of our, of our spiritual journey, spiritual practice ongoing exploration of the depths, the depths of consciousness, the possibilities of consciousness. Ongoing exploration of the way that perception can change and open out and expand. So in in having that thread through our life, (coughs) ongoing exploration, uh, it opens the being there's a receptivity there, there's a rest there, a deep rest in the being. Allows us to be more available to others. Because of this samadhi, because of this restfulness, because of this depth, we're actually more available to others, more available to ourselves, more available to life. And brings with it, in this, on this journey of samadhi, brings with it fresh perceptions, fresh discoveries on the path. So when we talk about samadhi, this collectedness, this unification, this depth, there's actually a whole range of states which we could uh, kind of delineate, or we could talk about a continuum. It's probably simpler to right now to talk about a continuum. Just a range of the mind deepening and getting more collected, more gathered. When the Buddha uh, was asked, what is right samadhi? He would actually delineate what's called the, the eight jhanas. 
These are very specific states of deepening concentration. I'm actually not going to go into that in this talk. And within the tradition, just historically, within, within the Buddhist tradition since the Buddhist time, there's quite some argument about whether these are important, whether these are important, whether they are necessary. And so some people uh, very much think they're absolutely necessary. Some people think they're irrelevant. And, uh, you know, the whole range in between. Uh, but I think everyone uh, would agree, all Dharma practitioners would agree, that samadhi in the general sense is important. Some kind of deepening of the mind, collecting of the mind. Almost everyone agrees on that. <coughs> so, as I said, I want to talk in, in quite a general way. We can talk generally again, when people talk about samadhi, usually what's meant is taking one object for the mind and keeping the mind with that one object. So, for instance, the breath, or the metta, or compassion, or body sensations, whatever. But I'd like to actually uh, broaden it. So some people here on this retreat will be just interested in working with the breath, just staying with the breath. Some people are doing metta practice and compassion practice, and then that's their one object, and returning to that. Some people will be wanting to do vipassana, and then usually the traditional way is a balance of developing some calmness with the breath and exploring what's unfolding, and then regathering the mind, regathering the attention with the breath again, and exploring and moving between. So can still see that for that kind of practice, samadhi is also important, has a, has a crucial role there. Some people uh, just sit right down. There's no place where they gather the attention. It's just an open attentiveness, just sitting, just, just alive, just present. But I would say also that the word samadhi in a general sense applies to that kind of practice as well. So what, what do I mean? Usually, when we're doing Vipassana, or just in, in daily life, the mind is moving, but it's actually moving in an unskillful relationship with what comes up. When is this going to end? How can I get that back? Oh, what does it mean about me? What does it mean about my practice? I, I want this, I'm trying to hang on to it, I'm trying to push this away. All of this, very normal sort of human uh, responses to things, actually, we could say, is an unskillful relationship. So sometimes when we're doing the past, we're just trying to be mindful, trying to be aware, but the mind is actually involved in, in unskillful relationships with things. When, uh, when the relationship with things begins to become more balanced, less clingy, uh, as I was talking about a little bit in the talk on Vedna the other day, then we can talk about uh, a samadhi happening in a more open sense, in a more general sense. We're calming the struggle we have with the moment, with our experience with life, and the whole uh, being begins to calm, begins to become steady, become collected. So we can talk about a kind of open samadhi.
know, the mind feels open, the awareness is open, and our relationship with things is, is not entangled. It's not entangled. So, collectedness, unification, depth. Another important aspect of samadhi is what we might call refinement. Refinement. So, what does that mean? It means the mind and the attentiveness gradually, slowly, becoming just a little bit more subtle, and just a little bit more subtle, and just a little bit more sensitive. So that refinement, this subtleizing of the mind, is, is a part of what samadhi is. And the deeper one goes <coughs> with the samadhi, the more, in a way, the more refined the mind is. So if you're working with the breath, one of my first teachers would say, the breath is actually a very good object for meditation because it has the capacity to become very subtle. And sometimes, some, some of you might, might have experienced already, when, when the sometimes in meditation, the breath can just become almost barely there. And then the mind, the attention, has to become correspondingly subtle. It has to follow the breath down like that. And so the mind and the attention is automatically becoming subtle to follow. And there's this refinement and the natural samadhi of the refinement. Breath is also useful because we can energize the body with the breath. So taking long, deep breaths actually energizes the body, brings energy. When we talk about samadhi, it's not just refinement and, say, calmness. It's a balance of being energized and being refined and calm. And they deepen together. The breath is very useful. But similarly, as I was talking in a sort of more open vipassana practice, as we begin to struggle less with our experience of the moment, there is this calming. And because of the calmness, there comes a refining. And uh, a settling and a subtleizing, uh, a subtlety to what's going on. So human beings are are extraordinary uh, in our capacity to develop skills, to work at skills and, and develop skills. If we just you know, only takes a moment reflection to see amazing range of skills that a human being could develop if they chose to. So you know, uh, some of you may know the Guinness Book of Records, and, and uh, it's like it's quite bizarre what some people devote their time to uh, to being able to do. And some of it's very beautiful, you know, like uh, playing a musical instrument. You know, great skill and. and uh, really a gift, actually, to humanity. Or e- even, I, I would actually say, uh, you know, beautiful football. Can, can, it's, it's a lovely skill that humanity is, is capable of developing. We had to ask ourselves, we have limited time on this planet, limited energy, limited resources. What is a skill worth developing? Uh, you know, we can get really good at Space Invaders or Nintendo, but at the end of the day, kind of, so what? So what? Learning to deepen in samadhi, learning to collect the mind, to unify the mind, hugely beneficial, hugely worthwhile in our life. A real gift to ourselves, to others, to the planet, through our life. So we often underestimate the importance of that, of learning that skill. 
the power of it and the significance of it. Buddha, countless times speaking about about developing samadhi, countless times, so often uh, emphasizing its importance, actually also talked about the path of vipassana to awakening, the path of love and compassion to awakening, and what's much less known is the path of samadhi to awakening. That actually, in itself, it's something that can lead all the way to awakening. And it's interesting, historically, you know, there's been, there's been a sort of, a little bit pushing away of this sense uh, of samadhi, of the importance of it in the West, uh, or else um, turning it into this sort of very concentrated <coughs> sense, very microscopic kind of awareness, which is also, I mean, it it's, can be useful, as I said the other day in the talk, but it's also something that I think, as far as I am aware, you could look through the entire collection of the Buddha's uh, discourses, and he doesn't once describe cons- you know, samadhi as this kind of uh, microscopic focus. But I think it's, it's changed now. People are beginning to realize, we, we are collectively beginning to realize the enormous well-being that can come from samadhi, from collecting the mind, from, from deepening. Enormous healing, enormous healing for the being there. Uh, the quality of life, sense of actually being more alive, feeling more alive, living more fully, sense of awe in our life. And this kind of steadiness it brings. So anyone who's, for example, involved in service work, or involved in uh, long creative projects, creative projects that take time, you know, writing a book or whatever it is, a symphony or something, how much steadiness of mind that needs to stay with the process when it gets tough. And then there's enormous amount of insights that come from from samadhi. Uh, In itself, it brings insights in itself. It also provides, uh, we could say, the the most fertile soil, the the, the best conditions for insights to, to flower, to grow. It's the, the prime condition of your mind is this kind of calming and opening and collecting. Also, what's very interesting and very noticeable as one goes deeper in practice is that, I'm sure actually we've all experienced this having been on retreat before, go for <coughs> a week or whatever it is on retreat and it feels like, oh, I really saw this thing, I really understood impermanence, I really understood... Uh, this pattern I keep getting into, uh, personality pattern, and feel great, okay, I've had that insight. And then we walk out the door, and maybe even before we've got home, <laughs> it's all just gone. Or a little while later, it just seems to evaporate. Somehow the insight didn't have, it wasn't kind of rooted deeply enough in the soil of the being. One of the amazing functions of samadhi is it roots the insights that we have. So they actually become uh, living, functioning, practical parts of <coughs> our life, our being. Not just abstract, not just mental, not just something that comes and then we forget. So in the, in the very beginning sense of samadhi, just, for instance, having a daily practice, or just uh, turning up to the sitting doing the walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, that kind of steadiness, uh, 
that kind of steadiness of, of our commitment, in some strange way, it finds its way into the being. And it begins to like percolate through the rocks and gives our, our life, uh, our being, a sense of steadiness. Slowly, gradually, just a little bit, a sense of steadiness. And with that steadiness comes some strength. Not, not a rigid strength, but a pliable strength. And generally, samadhi brings this steadiness and strength. Returning to the meditation object, staying with the meditation object, returning to mindfulness, there's a steadiness and strength that comes with that, just in the most basic sense that begins to come. Anyone who's been practicing a, a little while, or even who's just committed in their life to living with awareness, living with honesty, living with kindness, living questioning life, challenging uh, themselves, looking at the problems of life. Anyone at all committed to that will say, this is not at all easy. This is not at all easy. How much strength we need for that journey. How easy it is uh, for things to become difficult uh, and and we kind of keel over. We don't have that strength. Samadhi gives a, a beautiful, deep, pliable strength to the being. So, the Buddha, would, as I said, would often talk about samadhi, and then one day, uh, someone asked him, okay, well, what causes samadhi? What's the most uh, significant thing significant cause for samadhi and he didn't skip a beat and he said happiness <laughs> which is an odd odd answer at first it's an odd answer happiness leads to the mind collecting and calming and deepening now certainly it's true without question that samadhi leads to happiness that there is this sense of well-being of yeah, really happiness that comes uh, as the mind deepens and collects and the Buddha thinks the other way around as well. That a certain amount of, of a sense of uh, yeah, happiness uh, is actually required for the mind to settle down. So what does this mean for us here, now, today? I, I feel that very much what it means is to let in into our practice, into our time here, really a sense of appreciation, if possible. Appreciation for ourselves, for showing up, for doing the practice, appreciation for those around us, their steadiness, their commitment. Appreciation for all the work that goes into Rangaya House, the beautiful place we have here, the opportunity. Gratitude. Some people... Uh, the happiness is because they're actually letting in, opening to the love they have of being in a Dharma community, listening to the teachings. There's a love of the Dharma and there's a real happiness that comes from that, a real deep nourishment. I hope for all of us there's, there's a, a receptivity, deep receptivity to nature. It's, you know, I've been living here a while now and I, it never fails to blow my mind. How, how beautiful. Uh, what a lovely setting. I can't hear anything now. 
silence, nature, to open to uh, as part of the retreat that the being opens to that. The being opens to that. We feel nourished and uh, and touched by that. Some people, the simplicity. This is happiness inducing. Generally, though, some some receptivity is very much a part and a foundation of our practice, ongoing, uh, so that there is just a basic uh, sense of happiness on which on which our practice and the samadhi can be based. So, with practice, with uh, with with commitment. Of our samadhi, our practice begins to deepen. This totally does not happen in a linear way. Uh, completely not. It's not that there's this, you know, smooth and unimpeded ascent into the luminous depths of the being, and uh, it's just you just kind of sit back and watch it all go. Never, never. <laughs> it has to be has to be wavy. Has to be wavy. This process. But it does begin to deepen in a very gradual and slow and non-linear way. And I think yesterday Christina may have spoken a little bit about the hindrances. So these waves, basically, as it's deepening. The hindrances to samadhi, to calming. I won't say too much about that, except a big part of deepening in meditation is learning to accept these waves huge, huge and necessary part learning to accept them because they will almost definitely be with us for the rest of our lives coming and going, coming and going in one form or another to learn to accept them to learn to work with them and I'm not going to go into that here but there are you know, specific tools in relation to each of the five hindrances that we can really learn. Oh, this one, okay, I have my little, you know, toolbox for, for the hindrances. And it's completely appropriate. That's one of the uh, things that uh, we, we develop when we mature, mature in meditation, as we mature in meditation. It's just a, a range of tools for working with the hindrances. Sometimes we're trying to work with them, nothing works, we just see them out. I know what's going on. It's one or maybe all five hindrances. <laughs> it's just, okay, I'm clear. I'm just seeing this out. I'm, I'm surfing this wave. That's, that's what's needed. What also develops with maturity of practice is hindrances still come up. What... what happens less though is that we get taken for a ride by them less we get pulled by them less so we're sitting or walking or just around our day and there's uh, you know craving suddenly for something or someone or whatever it is or aversion how quickly unprotected we start then pumping the hindrance full injecting it you know mainlining it full of our story our history oh it's been like this since you know and then my parents and their parents and our whole life story and how it's going to go on forever and the whole the whole um, the whole nine yards of it with with maturity again slowly gradually we, we learn to just say it's just a hindrance I don't need to pump it full of all this stuff and kind of inject more life into it 
just see, ah, it's the hindrance of doubt, whatever it is. And just recognize that much and either work with it or sit it out, but not give it life. So we don't give it life by getting our story so hooked up in it. We also don't take it so personally. Hindrances are part of the human condition. Absolutely they are part of the human condition. They're part of what it is to have a human consciousness. Can we see that? It's just this stuff happening. It's just waves happening in the ocean. I don't actually need to start judging my practice. (coughs) I don't need to take it personally. I bet my neighbor on the cushion next door does not have this. I don't need to get into all that. It's just human. I don't need to take it personally. Can I respond with kindness? Because hindrances are basically suffering. They're, they're difficult and they're human. Can I respond to it with kindness instead of uh, find a way to respond to it with kindness instead of reacting to it? So when we talk about samadhi, um, especially in the sense of staying with one object like the breath or like the metta or like the compassion or whatever it is especially when we talk about it in that sense it can often be that uh, people have objections to to, to that to even that process that a tightness comes with it a tightness comes with it or that uh, there's a goal orientation involved in it and a striving involved in it or that we'll get attached to it. We'll get attached to this calmness, or the or the refinement, or the, uh, or the or the collectedness, or the depth. Or uh, that there will be that actually, what's happening when we're involved in smiling, we might be suppressing some emotion, some very important emotion that's necessary to feel. So. All, all of these, you know, very thoughtful responses to the meditative life. I'd like to go into them a little bit. So actually, sometimes what happens: person starts practicing with one object, the breath or the metal, and says, "I want to do this." Then after a while, feels tight. The being has kind of got feels like <clears throat> got tight around the whole process. So this, this, this isn't that nice. I think I'll just. Let that breath go. Let all that go. Don't try and do anything with that. And just go to a sense of open awareness. I'll just be with what is. That's what I'll do. And then one does that, and it's like, oh, lovely. There's a relief. You know, lovely. Because you're not trying to stay with one thing. Now, what I don't want to do in this talk is say anyone has to do one practice or anything like that. That's, that's really not my way, and it's certainly not the guy house way. Just to say, there's a range of approaches in meditation. Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and attendant, after the Buddha died, he sort of became quite a senior figure. And so he was speaking one day and he said, of everyone that's come to me and declared themselves uh, fully enlightened, an arhant, um, of everyone who's come to me and said that, They've either said, 
I practiced samadhi first and then I did vipassana or I did vipassana first and then I did samadhi or I developed the two ongoing side by side at the same time basically those are the three options <laughs> what's being said here and I, and I certainly see it for myself in my own practice a balance over one's lifetime sometimes will be will be I'm just being with what is I'm just doing that more open sense of vipassana sometimes I'm really exploring samadhi and the depth that comes that way but to see in a way what, what I want to paint is a little bit of a bigger picture it's, it's c- completely appropriate to make a choice at a certain time either one or the other or both at the same time but just to see the bigger picture that in a lifetime we want to kind of balance these two we really want to balance these two there is as much freedom, I feel, that can come out of samadhi as there is that can come out of vipassana. And in the end, they blend. They are indistinguishable as it goes deeper. So, we're practicing and we feel this tightness. You know, how can, it, how can we deepen the samadhi? How can we deepen the practice and work with this tightness or actually not even really get that tight? It's a really important question because in samadhi or another uh, ingredient of the mix of samadhi is a kind of softness. It's a kind of, it's not a hard, uh, narrow, closed state. There's a kind of uh, tenderness to it, a softness to it. And tightness is is not going to produce that. So somehow we have to find a way of working that's not tight it's not tight so slightly bigger mindfulness we can still work with one object if that's what we're doing the metta or the breath or whatever but slightly larger picture it's a foreground background slightly bigger picture bigger mindfulness including the whole sense of the whole body so to be aware of the body and aware in the moment, in the sort of background of the awareness, a general awareness, what is my emotional relationship with the practice right now? Am I uh, overtight? Am I frustrated? Am I angry? Am I um, bored? Am I disinterested? Am I... Uh, balanced? Am I open? Am I soft? Am I, uh, you know, this uh, awareness of what is the emotional relationship with what's going on right now? It's a key factor to be aware of. In the bigger space of the body awareness, you can feel the uh, tightness when it comes up. We actually feel it in the body. There's a certain tightness that creeps into the, the musculature. We can actually feel it with this larger awareness and just just relax it, just keep relaxing it. One of my early teachers used to say, get the whole body involved, get the whole body involved. So, working with the breath, get your, he'd say, get your legs involved, are your legs breathing? <laughs> I remember hearing another teacher more recently saying, that's ridiculous, you, you don't have any tubes in your leg. How <laughs> can you breathe? 
And that's true, but actually if one's careful and, and has a, a more sensitive attention to the whole body, there, there is, you can feel the breath energy moving the legs. Or, or if you're just working a small area with the breath, there's still this sense of the whole body and the background awareness. The whole body is included, including the legs, including everything. The whole body is involved with the breath. Or with the metta. Again, sometimes we station the attention in the heart, you know, very... Uh, obviously the, the, the seat of, of the metta. But actually, get the whole body involved. So that there's this sensitivity to the whole body. The Buddha said, sensitive to the whole body. So that as the metta, or the compassion practice deepens, actually it's the whole body begins to radiate this metta. The whole body begins to be uh, covered with this sense of metta. Or again, in a vipassana practice, to have the whole body involved. So there's a sense of the whole body sitting. We can take up, I'm looking at this object or that object or whatever it is, or a more general sense, but that the whole body is involved. As samadhi deepens, it really needs this whole body sense. It becomes very key. One of the keys to the samadhi actually deepening is this sense and sensitivity to the whole body. So if we want to develop this collection of samadhi, it's really not a matter of, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to roll up the sleeves and you grit your teeth, and you know, boring a laser beam hole in the breath. It's not going to work, basically. Um, Do we have, as part of our emotional uh, climate, do we have uh, kindness in relationship to what's going on? Kindness to ourselves, hugely important. And just to check in, am I being kind with myself in the process? Sometimes there will be tightness, absolutely there will be tightness, you know, in the process of samadhi deepening. But that's, it's okay, it's just, in a way it's just a way, it's okay, we can work with it. Um, I was talking to someone a little while ago, and there was, they weren't on retreat, but in their everyday practice of just complaining of this sense of tightness and they actually figured out for themselves uh, very soon after we had spoken what happened when I just accepted oh, it was just tightness and I was, I was caught in the struggle of it needs to go away and when I just said oh, it's just tightness there could be the acceptance of it and actually uh, the whole thing just could gently dissolve and move into another level So the bigger picture, we're aware of our, our uh, bodies, we're aware of um, the emotional relationship we have with what's going on, especially the question of effort. So this this also very important and can, can uh, become very subtle. Am I trying too hard? Am I being, uh, you know, trying not hard enough? It's, it's very delicate, almost like pedals on a... Well, car is too gross an analogy, but some, some very delicate play of pedals with the effort. Can also, uh, related to this, move between working in a very sort of probing way with the attention. So if we're working with the breath, the, breath, the attention can really probe the breath. Can really like focus in like that. Or it's almost metaphorically like one's almost sitting back and just receiving the breath, receiving it. 
It's a more receptive mode. So awareness is, in a sense, sitting back just to receive the breath. So there's a, a sort of probing and a receiving. It can be very skillful to work with these two, to have some sense of these two and what's appropriate at different times. But this also goes for a vipassana practice. So sometimes we're really probing one object. Sometimes I was saying the other day, we're working in a much more spacious sense. Just awareness is just receiving what's arising and allowing. Receiving and allowing. Again, with the metta or the compassion practice, we can uh, feel like we are giving love. We are giving love. Or uh, that the love is kind of imbuing the space or that we are receiving love as well. So if you're doing metta, is that part of what's going on? That there's receiving. Even when one's giving to another being, one's also receiving that climate. So more, more directed and more receiving. So these kind of, uh, you know, in a very graceful way to move between these, uh, these emphases, these poles in practice. If we get too tight, uh, what can happen is it's like squeezing the mind and there's a, it actually leads to more thought, leads to more restlessness. So paradoxically, we try too hard and actually build, more thought comes. So I'd say sometimes it's like you, you've got a banana skin and you're squeezing it too tight and, and the banana just goes flying out. The mind actually, but it's too slippery. Start drifting. If we're too loose in the approach, generally kind of a dullness will creep in, and a slight sinking, you know, something akin to uh, sloth and torpor. So this whole question of effort and tightness, it's, it's a very delicate question to be explored and played with. Tightness, second a possible question that people can have about this is about goals. Goals. I thought we weren't supposed to have any goals. I thought, you know, spiritually we were letting go of all that. Or I don't want to have any goals. Again, can we can we bring our wisdom, our reflective mind to bear on this question? Because it's very important. Uh, is it realistic to say, I'm not going to have any goals? What would that mean? Life is full of goals. Can we actually learn to have an okay relationship with goals? You know, on a very mundane level, at 12.30 every day, the lunch bell goes. And then in the next 45 minutes, it's most people's goal to sort of toddle along to the lunch hall and get their lunch. Is that really a big deal? And then the food is on the plate, and my goal is this mouthful is going to find its way from the plate into the mouth. You know, it's a goal. It's, what's the big deal? On on a on a you know on another level, any anyone involved in, in a committed relationship, a marriage, or, or a partnership, or or even a committed friendship, how much uh, work that takes. You know, um, how much effort, how much time. And going back to the question of tightness, sometimes this isn't easy yet. We, we don't, um, it's not a problem. 
sometimes because I don't want to have any goals because that's dualistic and I'm into non-duality, whatever. Uh, and again, it's oftentimes, it's, oftentimes it's, sometimes it's coming from a place that actually lacks integrity, it's true, but sometimes it's really coming from a place of integrity. But to bring, bring the wisdom in, sometimes, you know, we talk about non-duality, it's actually not quite understood. There's a whole different understanding, a much uh, fuller and deeper understanding of non-duality that comes when, when the samadhi has developed. The, the, the direction of samadhi is actually into non-duality. That's the direction it's moving. It looks the opposite at first. It's actually moving into non-duality. And when people talk about non-duality, often they're still talking in the realm of uh, self and the world of things and states, and all states are equal, they're saying. You know. But deep understanding non-duality... Um, there are actually no states. There are no things. There, there's no even awareness. It goes. It goes much deeper. It, it's rare that that level of understanding non-duality will be understood without the commitment to samadhi. It's a whole different understanding when there's the some degree of samadhi and then letting go after that, rather than just saying forget the whole thing. It's a whole different understanding. So there's the problem, potential problem of tightness, of goals and striving, attachment. So again, often people say, and you often hear from uh, teachers too, you'll get attached. Don't, don't, don't do too much of that because you'll get attached. And it's interesting, you know, sometimes uh, that message goes out, or we think that, I mustn't get attached in meditation, I mustn't get attached to my meditation. Yet we barely raise an eyebrow, barely blink at our attachment, say, to tasty food. Doesn't, it doesn't even register. Or that we want a nice house to own or to live in or whatever. And sometimes the same people saying, don't get attached, are, the other, are the, you know, quite happily attached to these other areas, and it's kind of okay. You know, I sometimes say to people, if there is a pleasure coming from some settling in the mind, from some calming, actually, really to let myself enjoy it. So big, you know, oh, it's big flashing neon. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. <laughs> it's like, uh, and sometimes we need reminding of ourselves. We, we need to, to remind ourselves of this because we don't. We're almost like, well, I shouldn't. So this flashing, you know, it's like the, the sort of inner, uh, the inner Las Vegas. <laughs> it's actually, it's much nicer than Las Vegas. <laughs> One of my teachers, Ajahn Tanisaro, has been a monk for 30-something years in, in Thailand and in California. And he said to me, Rob, don't worry about that, get attached. Get attached, go on, go ahead and get attached. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I said, yeah, get attached, because samadhi does not lead to attachment. If one keeps working at it, it does not lead to attachment. Of its, by its own nature, it leads beyond itself. It just deepens and leads beyond itself. So, slowly, gradually, as I said, in a non-linear way, 
we begin, the mind begins to settle down, to find some calmness, some collectedness, some samadhi. We begin to be less enticed by uh, this stories, proliferation of things. Like all the issues and everything just begin to be less uh, alluring. Samadhi is actually an acquired taste, like I'm, I'm told, like caviar is an acquired taste. You know, samadhi is a bit like that. We just sometimes it's like, actually, it's really lovely not to go chasing all these issues all the time. And slowly, gradually, we begin to get a feel for it. So that it can be, and people have regularly reported, oh, no need, you know, I can just let that thought go. No need sometimes to even finish a thought. Thoughts around, I just, halfway through the thought, do I really need to go to the end of this? <laughs> I mean, if your mind is anything like mine, how interesting are most of the thoughts? <laughs> most of it is rubbish. Most of it we've thought a million times before. Do I really need to even finish this thought? You can just see just drop it. Or you're doing the walking meditation outside and someone, someone is leaving to go for a walk or someone's getting in their car or some car is arriving and, and, and sometimes you can catch this pull. Who is it? What's going on? <laughs> you know, does it really matter? Is it going to make any difference? So sometimes if there's enough mindfulness you can actually catch that movement, that uh, rather intention for the movement. You just stay. It actually doesn't make any difference. One loses the appetite for all this um, being involved in everything. So again, slowly, gradually, it can deepen. Now what can happen, what can happen for some people, for some people sometimes what can happen is what's called PT. So it's another Pali word, PT, P-I-T-I, PT. Usually translated as rapture. This is basically any kind of pleasant feeling in meditation that's associated with the meditation. So it could be extremely strong waves of bliss and ecstasy, whatever. It could be just the bare sense of uh, pleasantness, of... Um, tingling, of lightness, of warmth, of something rising, of uh, openness, any kind of pleasant sensation in the body, either in some area of the body or in the whole body, that can come from the meditation. That's called PT. Okay, it can happen. Now, I don't want to set up any, you know, huge arena for attachment here, but it can happen sometimes to some people. Uh, this pleasantness with meditation. Why does it happen? Uh, it's interesting. Well, how does it happen? I should say, how, what, what allows it to happen? Because it turns out to be quite a significant... Um, not only is it very nice and very enjoyable, and suddenly we're really interested in meditation when it's, when it's there, but it's, um, it's, very, it's very much a part of the whole process deepening. So partly you can think, I mean, oftentimes the most common way, I don't know if it's more common, but a regular way that it happens is just through staying with the object. So just through staying with the breath or the metta, whatever it is, there's almost like the mind and the object, there's a kind of rubbing up against repeatedly, and it, it um, 
builds the energy that way and the energy manifests as PT. Uh, or the mind is gathering energy through not being scattered. So instead of throwing the energy out everywhere, the mind is just gathering its energy and then it manifests in this lovely way in the body. Uh, sometimes PT is translated as interest, so there's a real interest in the practice. Sometimes it's just, uh, it just comes because there's a lot of energy in the practice. Sometimes, and, and I think a very significant factor, going back to what I was saying before, is the kind of openness of the being, the openness, the receptivity to nature, to being here, to just an emotional openness. One is emotionally open. That kind of openness opens the energy channels in the being, so to speak, and, and the PT can flow. <coughs> so this, op- as go- saying again what I said before, the openness of being here has a lot to do with the, uh, the PT. Non-entanglement. When the mind is not entangled with things, there is a kind of... Um, uh, that's one of the conditions for the PT to arise. Now, again, there's a range of practices, so it's possible to just, if PT arises, uh, fine, it's just one more thing, and I just see it's impermanent, it comes and goes, not me, not mine, it's just another thing, be aware of it, let it go. Completely fine practice in the context of one way of doing Vipassana, absolutely fine. But you also have a choice to kind of gently encourage and nurture that energy and allow it. And it's the kind of gateway to something much deeper, the PT. I won't go into it, but, you know, happiness and joy and stillness <coughs> and peacefulness and all that. So that's one possibility, is just to really let the being enjoy and open to this, if it's there, when it's there, and gently encourage that. Sometimes when, when there is a sense of pity, or even not, and the mind is just calming down, settling down a bit, for some people a fear comes up, can come up. It's quite common, and not everyone, but it's quite common, uh, where in new territory, the mind, the awareness is in new territory, unknown waters. And so it might actually be there's quite some pleasantness even, and at the same time there's some fear. And we're sort of like this. Uh, if that happens, uh, know that you can trust this. And is it possible to just gently incline the awareness towards the pleasantness rather than the fear? So not pushing away the fear, just gently towards the pleasantness, if this is what's going on. And the mind feels reassured by the pleasantness and can just move gently into the new territory and and feel that it can trust it. Of course, if the fear is very strong, then you have to open to that and explore that. And sometimes what's happening is the sense of self is changing from our normal, uh, everyday, enclosed sense of self. Sometimes it just begins to really soften. And this can be, for some people, very unsettling. Some people even brings up, just hearing about it, brings up the fear of death even. It's, it's like we're losing the self, losing the self. 
just to know uh, that, that it can be trusted and has a huge part in changing, in rather shaking up our sense of self. So the very samadhi, the very change in the sense of self then begins to shake up our whole sense of ego, sense of self. We're opening up into a different sense of self. What, what, who am I when the sense of the self is actually quietened? I, have to, I can't rely on my definitions, on my usual busy personality. My whole sense of self is challenged and questioned. It's a huge insight possible. When we talk about samadhi, just to say, it, it, I think it should have love in it. It's, it love is, is a kind of another factor of, of the mind gathering together and opening and deepening this way. So that's why this openness is important uh, as a sort of ongoing foundation of our practice. Uh, love, as I said, kindness for the self, loving kindness towards others, uh, towards nature, towards all, all things, mixed with the samadhi. It should have that quality of love in it, even just a little bit. And this quality of receptivity. So hopefully, hopefully that's part of what's going on. If it doesn't, sometimes, and I have seen it's possible for people to go very deep levels of samadhi, very, very deep, but somehow it doesn't have this love in it, and it doesn't have that receptivity. And then, and I've also seen, something happens. Some, some major life crisis, or some situation, or, or some physical illness happens, and everything crumbles. It all goes out the window. A person has nothing to draw on, even might just completely stop practicing, lose their relationship with the whole path. Why? Because they're somehow going through all these states and it was not somehow shot through and imbued with this quality of love. So a really full and transforming samadhi has to have this quality of love in it. So I want to talk just finally and uh, briefly about the the fourth... um, question about samadhi that people sometimes have about am am I suppressing might I be suppressing some emotions here so actually what really in my own mind what I wanted to do was give a pair of talks of which this is the first one and the second one hopefully will be about emotional healing so just in a way to present a broader picture and uh, what is involved in emotional healing we'll go into that another time but does this question of if I'm concentrating on one thing, or if I'm quieting the mind this way, and not a lot is coming up, is it possible that I'm suppressing my true emotions, my true feelings? Is it possible that that's going on? So this is a really important question. It's often, often coming from a real, a real person's genuine care and integrity to ask this question. Oftentimes, what happens is we, we say, yes, I can, therefore I need to be really careful with the samadhi and actually not really go there because I want to remain open with the emotions and to what might present itself and come through. But 
I think, and partly why I want to talk about emotion, is a very complicated question. This this whole area of what actually heals us emotionally is a very very multifaceted question. It's not an easy question, and so just to be uh, slow. Uh, with answering this question for ourselves. To be quite delicate and not rush into an answer. So certainly, is it possible that we're suppressing emotions? Yes, it's possible. It's absolutely possible. Um, But it's also possible that's actually not what's going on. So I I remember uh, quite some years ago practicing in a meditation center in America. It wasn't on retreat. It was just there for an evening. And sitting, uh, half an hour meditation, whatever it was, and there was some degree of samadhi, nothing major, you know, no jhana or anything like that, just some degree of samadhi. And I had uh, been in a period of my life where there was a lot of anger coming up, really a lot of anger, waves of anger, in relationship to someone that I had had a working relationship with, who, it was very complicated, but there, there was sort of some, really some wrongdoing there. And a lot of anger on my part, and uh, not just to me, but to other people in, sort of, in a quite criminal way, actually. But um, so lots of waves of anger, and I was experiencing this and allowing it. In this sitting, half an hour, some samadhi, some collectedness, thought of this person came up. Usually, the anger would have just gone, all this anger, and I open to it and I be with it. Instead, what happened, just the thought came up, just a moment, mm. no, nothing happened, and it just died. Nothing came from that moment. Nothing came out of that moment. And this, this made such an impression on me, because I had been very much from the point of view of, I am uh, sitting on a volcano of anger here, <laughs> and I've just got to be patient and let this stuff come out. And that's how I was working. And I saw, without the... Uh, it, when there was samadhi, actually, that's not what happened. Very interesting. So similarly, uh, on retreat a little while ago here, a yogi was saying, we were talking about this, and I suggested, when there's calmness, just drop in these issues to the samadhi. There's some degree of samadhi. Drop in these issues that are you know, driving you bonkers, basically. Just drop them into the quiet. And see. And she came back next interview. She said, there was some quiet, I dropped them in, nothing happened. Nothing happened. And also for her, it was a major, like, <sighs> our emotional storms, our upheavals, need certain conditions. They're not there somewhere in this invisible psyche waiting, you know, pre-packaged, ready to, ready to sort of present themselves, full-blown. We're not sitting on that. Again, I, I want to go into this, uh, another day. It's not, it's not that uh, simple. I, I think sometimes we are sitting on stuff, but just to say a point about samadhi today. It needs certain conditions. And if the conditions are not there, if a certain agitation of mind is not there in the present, this storm, this big emotion, cannot actually come up. Our issues are empty in themselves. They don't exist in themselves. Sometimes we need to see this over and over. 
for me, it made a huge impression because I'd been working so much for so long in the, in the other way. Uh, but oftentimes, we just need to see this over and over. Usually, and very understandable, we tend to think of samadhi as uh, doing something. So, kind of feverishly, we're trying to hold this calmness together and hold this collectiveness of mind. It's understandable that we would think that. It seems like a lot of work. We're doing, doing, it's doing. With practice, and sometimes it takes a lot of practice, what we begin to see is that samadhi is actually a doing less and less. It's doing less and less. It's actually injecting less and less into our experience. All the way that we basically inject nothing. We inject nothing and nothing comes up. And actually even, not even nothing comes up. <laughs> we're making less and less through samadhi it's, it's the, the opposite it's not what it seems to be at first with this making less and less we're actually making less and less self making less and less problem making less and less world and all that making less and less brings with it love it brings with it uh, metta naturally brings with it freedom we understand that things are actually made empty. Mm-hmm, this emptiness, when we understand it, you know, uh, that that's where the really deep freedom is. Seeing that the world is constructed. And this, this is talking about deep, very deep somebody now, but you can begin to get a glimpse of it, as I said, even with just a little bit. So when we talk about emptiness and stuff like that, sometimes we think, oh, it's going to be this sudden revelation, but actually it's just gradual gradual uh, understanding that just deepens and deepens. It's not necessarily sudden. And it's something that's very real, very possible, very available to us. So not at all abstract or, or for someone else. Very available to all of us. Okay. Let me just sit for a minute together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.